Well, this past Monday marked officially one year of us being with you here at Calvary. And so we're, <laughs> we're so glad for everything. We're glad for everything that God has done over this past year. Very thankful to him. Excited for what he's going to continue to do. Uh, and we are a blessed congregation here. And Angela and I, and now our newborn son, we just feel totally blessed to be here and among this family that God has chosen for this time and this place here in downtown Ottawa. Um, we've enjoyed getting to know many of you better over the last 12 months, and we hope that many more of you will get to know better and get to grow in relationships and friendships with you guys over this time. As you get to know me, though, there's something you should know about me. And this is something very important. I'm not talking about my job or my family, my hobbies, my, uh, what I do in my spare time. This is what you need to know about me. I really like my breakfast cereal. I love cereal. <laughs> and I, for anyone who helped us move into our new home, you probably already figured this out. Or if you've ever been to our house and visited us and seen our huge leaning tower of cereal on top of our fridge. But this is, <laughs> I don't know what it is about cereal, but I really like it. Um, I had heard that as we were being moved in, there were many exclamations of people going, More cereal? How much cereal does two people actually need? Um, I saw this week some brand new chocolate Cheerios. And boy, I was very tempted to get some. I'll have to at some point. I mean, sometimes I'll have a bagel or toast or a special breakfast like pancakes or French toast or something like this. But for the most part, I just prefer the simplicity of a bowl of cereal and milk. That's my personal taste. And call me crazy, but I'll choose my cereal probably over the more superior or healthier breakfast every time. <laughs> every single day, I'd love to have cereal. Morning after morning, I will choose my Lucky Charms or my Mini Wheats or my Cinnamon Toast Crunch or my Life Cereal, or my Crispix, or my Frosted Flakes, or my Fruit Loops, or the list goes on. <laughs> well, in the Old Testament, we read about many times, actually, that the Israelites made a choice over and over again. And it was a crazy choice that they kept on making. They kept choosing something that was inferior to something that was superior. But it wasn't a trivial choice, like something like choosing cereal over, say, a Grand Slam breakfast. It was something much more serious. See, the Israelites kept choosing other gods. They kept choosing other gods over the one true, powerful God that had saved them. And those choices ended up being tragic mistakes, horrific mistakes. We're going to look a bit closer at one of these stories from Israel's history, and I think that as we look at this, we'll see some interesting parallels to the way that we treat God today. Because oftentimes, even though we think we are, we aren't much better than these people we call crazy. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Judges. Book of Judges, near the beginning of your Bible, after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. We'll be in chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, and as you turn there, I'm just going to pray that God would enlighten us to his word today. Lord, we 
pray that as we come to your word, that you would be working on each one of our hearts. That your spirit would be working on us to convict us, to draw us closer to you. Help us to see our sin for what it is. And help us to know how to repent and come back to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a part of the nation of Israel's history books. There's a number of books in the Old Testament that talk about their history. And Judges covers a season of history that's after the exodus from Egypt. So, and after Joshua and the conquest of Canaan. So after Moses and Joshua, everything that happened with them. And before God set up the kingdom. So the famous kings like Saul or David, Solomon, or even Samuel. This is before that time. So in between these. And in this time, probably covered a few hundred years, there was one problem that Israel kept having again and again and again. And that was the problem of idolatry. They kept falling into idolatry. Idolatry, of course, is the worship of idols, or the worship of man-made gods. Okay? And after Israel conquered Canaan, they were, there were still remnants of the people that they had taken over, the, the previous Canaanites, and they lived among the people of Israel, as well as there were neighboring countries around them. With, and all of these nations had their own gods. Some had one god, some had many gods. And for some reason, Israel was constantly tempted and tripped up by these gods. In midst of Israel continuously falling into idolatry, though, God kept trying to draw them back. God was still working on them. And God in his mercy began providing a number of special leaders called judges. Now, these weren't judges like we know of now that just sat in the court and presided over cases. These judges had many roles. Their roles were to call Israel to repentance, or their roles were to lead them into battle against their enemies, or to govern Israel for a period of time. So they were part prophet, part general, part ruler, okay? So they had many roles over Israel. Some were much more famous. You know people like Gideon or Samson, Deborah. These were all judges over Israel. The passage we're in today is actually at a time in between God raising up judges. He raised up a number of them. So this is after Gideon, after Deborah, and after a few others, and we get to Judges 10. And we see here Israel falling into their usual cycle. In Judges, there seems to be a cycle again and again where they would go from repentance to following God for a while to falling into idolatry to complete wickedness to repentance and over and over and over the cycle went. And so we come to Judges chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 6. Verse 6. And the first sentence here is a sentence you'll see again and again in the book of Judges. It says this, Judges 10.6, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then we read of the Lord's response to their unfaithfulness. Continue in verse 6. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the god of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. 
The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim. And Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Stop there for now. I'm going to make several observations today from this passage that I think can shed a lot of light on our own lives today. Some 3,000 years later. It's still applicable to us. And the first one here on your sermon notes you'll see is this. That idolatry is characterized by forsaking God and not serving him. The heart of idolatry is forsaking the one true God and not serving him. Idolatry is characterized by forsaking God and not serving him. Did you see this here? What was the evil that the Israelites did in God's sight? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and all these other gods. So they served these foreign gods. But that, and that's the evil that they did. But what did God get angry at them for? It wasn't that. Continue. Middle of verse 6. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. Because they forsook the Lord and no longer served them. So he got angry, not because they were following these other gods, but because there was a direct correlation. When they started following these other gods, they forsook him. And they stopped serving him. The first, um, when we get to verse 10, and the Israelites eventually confessed their sin. They admit as much. What do they admit? Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Forsaking our God. So as the Israelites fell into idolatry again here, some you could say they fell hard. They were amassing quite the little pantheon of gods, weren't they? We read in in verse 6 again, they served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. It seemed like the philosophy of the day was the more gods, the merrier. And worshiping these false gods at this time would have included a huge variety of practices. And some of them were quite disgusting. Many of these gods required massive sexual rituals. Some of them required human sacrifice of family members. To keep it G-rated, I won't go into details. But you read about these things that they were doing to follow these gods. And it's, it's dumbfounded. It's like, why? How did they fall into this? Why did they follow these gods that required such things of them? Why did they worship them? Would it have been peer pressure? Or fear? Thinking that their God wasn't doing his job? Maybe they thought that these other gods were better in some way. Or superior. They had been brainwashed. Or maybe they thought that they would bring them more pleasure. They would allow them more freedom. But whatever the case, that they would follow these gods is quite... It's just remarkable and dumbfounded. One thing that's really interesting here is that God predicted this would happen. 
You know that? And God predicted that the Israelites would keep getting tripped up by these other gods. See, we learned earlier in the book of Judges that this was actually a direct consequence of an earlier disobedience. As Israel was taking over the land of Canaan, the Lord told them to make sure that they destroyed all the idols and all the altars they found in the land and to drive out the nations in front of them, otherwise they would fall like them. But as Israel went in, they didn't fully obey. And they didn't drive all the peoples out, and they let them keep some of their altars and some of their gods around. Back in Judges chapter 2, it says this, The angel of the Lord said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. Their gods will be a snare to you. That's what happened. These gods really became a snare to the Israelites. And here in chapter 10, when the Israelites fell once again, God responded, verse 7, He became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Now, if you think that God's response to this was too harsh. That this was too much of a punishment. You really don't understand how serious idolatry is to God. See, idolatry at its heart is forsaking God. It's forsaking the one true God. And when people worship other gods, it deprives God of glory that he alone deserves. The purpose of the entire universe, we know, is to bring glory to God. And so when we start worshiping other things, it deprives them of this glory. And when humans attempt to drive, deprive God of glory that is rightfully His, it becomes extremely wicked and sinful. Like all sins, idolatry fully deserves God's wrath. You might think, though, as you read this passage, what does this have to do with us? I don't seem to have anything in common with these people. I don't have a bunch of gods in my house that I worship, and they lived in a different time, a different age. But unfortunately, I think we do have a lot in common. We do have a lot in common. In many ways, we're no better. Because I believe each of us, every one of us in this room, has started forming other gods in their lives. They've started to worship other things instead of God. You might object here and say, well, I don't worship other gods. I don't go around singing songs to false gods. My Baal, I love thee. I know thou art mine. Or, on Zeus the solid rock I stand. (laughs) No, we don't do that. But remember, worship is much wider than just singing. 
Worship is much wider than just prayer. I gave you a definition for worship before that I think is a good one. And worship is glorifying something by excessively loving it with anything you have. You get that? Worship is glorifying something by excessively loving it with anything you have. An idol doesn't necessarily have a personal name attached to it. It could be anything in our lives, and they're different for everyone. When I say it could be loving it with anything you have, anything you have could be your time, your emotions, your money, your thoughts, your words, your actions, your trust, your love. I'm going to start stepping on some toes here. I've been here a year. I think I can start doing that. (laughs) But I want you to pay attention to what God's Word has to say. Okay? And consider what gods you may have formed in your life. I'll ask you some questions. What do you glorify with your time? What do you glorify with your time? Your job? A relationship with someone? Your pride or your reputation, a hobby, TV, maybe Facebook. For some of us, it's probably sleep. Your family, your friendships, your social life. Do you spend more time on your computer than you do with God? How about your emotions? What do you glorify with your emotions? What do you find yourself most passionate about? Can you, like many of us, find yourself at a sports event willing to stand up and cheer ecstatically, get all excited, but you won't raise a hand in praise to God? What do you glorify with your money? What do you spend most of your money on? Your home? Your clothes? Maybe music. Maybe you put a lot of money towards your retirement, which is a wise thing to do here on earth, but you don't put anything towards your eternal retirement. Ask yourself, do you give generously to God? Or do you give generously just into your spending budgets? I have a feeling many of us probably give more money to the local movie theater than we do to God and his work. Or we give more money to our cell phone companies because we need that better plan. What about your thoughts? What do you glorify with your thoughts? Do you obsess in your mind about something? This could be anything good bad, in between. Maybe your thoughts are full of a sinful habit that you've fallen into. Or maybe you can't stop thinking about something good, like your family or work or school. Last question. What do you glorify with your words? With what you say? What do you talk up? Is it ever God? may have noticed has gone through all these different ideas, and there's <laughs> so many more that I could have gone through. Some of these are definitely bad things. Some of them 
aren't so bad. They may be neither good or bad. And some of them are very good things that we should be involved with or should have, should love. But if anything, anything has displaced God as the most important thing in your life, it's an idol. Anything we put above God is an idol. When we have idols, we're guilty of idolatry. And as you see here, is guilty of forsaking God. Whether it's conscious or unconscious. See why idolatry is such a big deal to God? It's pervasive, isn't it? He's a jealous God and will not tolerate other things robbing your affections from him. I want you to do something a bit different here. As I went through that list of ways that we might have developed an idol in our lives, I'm sure the Holy Spirit probably pointed out a couple to you. And if he didn't, I'm sure you can think of others. But I want you to take your sermon notes that you got when you came in, and I want everyone here, okay, this is private between you and God, okay, to write something down. In fact, write two idols that the Holy Spirit pointed out to you in your life and put them down on your sermon notes. Okay? I want you to write that down. They won't be like the Israelites here with Baal or Ashtoreth, but they could be anything in your life, like a job or money, your pride, anything really. Okay, I'll give you a minute to do that. What are two major idols that compete with God for your emotions, your time, your money, or so on? Okay, write them down and we'll return to that in a bit. I'll give you a minute. You can keep writing if you still are, but I don't know if you noticed in this passage as we read it, after 18 years of oppression, the Israelites finally realized that they were doing wrong. It took them that long to realize that God was punishing them for worshiping these other gods. And verse 9 says that they ended up in great distress. They hit rock bottom. And right at that time, right when they hit rock bottom is when they ran back to God. They ran back to God, confessed their sin. Verse 10, Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. But God responds here after this. And his response is going to show us something else about idolatry. And that's this. That when we have idolatry in our lives, it's easy to forget the salvation God has shown us. Idolaters easily forget salvation that God has shown them. When we have idolatry, it distracts us from God's salvation. Look how God responds here to Israel's confession of idolatry in verse 11. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? 
But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. He's like, you're asking me to save you right now, but I already have saved you. On a number of occasions, we know of at least seven here that he lists. When he saved them from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites, and so on. God had already saved them. Take a minute and think of what the Israelites had seen over their semi-recent history. Just in the previous generations before them, they had seen God bring their people out of Egypt. With Moses, he sent ten supernatural plagues to deliver them. And then as they exited the country, he opened up a sea for them to walk through on dry land. Think about that for a second. Okay? Once they got into the land and Joshua was leading, they saw similar things. He stopped up the Jordan River so they could cross again through dry land. They saw the mighty city of Jericho fall before their eyes, something only God could do for them. And then that's not even listing all these other people that God said he just saved them from. God had delivered them, one after the other after the other, year after year after year. But when the Israelites got enticed and snared by all these false gods around them, they seemingly forgot all this. They didn't remember the God's salvation, all the ways that God had supernaturally saved them. They thought, maybe this God isn't enough. We need to be saved by these other gods as well. I love what God tells the Israelites in verse 14. It's dripping with sarcasm. It says, go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Let them save you. So, hey, listen, if you want to follow these other gods, fine. But see if they actually save you, like I have. When it comes to us today, when we have idolatry in our lives, I believe it's also easy for us to forget the salvation that God has shown us. And the salvation that God has shown us is even greater than the physical salvation that he showed them. God may not have physically saved our nation from enemies over the past years, but he has spiritually saved our souls from hell. Get that? We all deserve hell. We've all sinned. But God desired for us to earn heaven. And as but he was apparently clear that we could not earn our way to heaven by no means of our own. We tried, we failed again and again. We couldn't get there. And so God, in his wisdom, he sent his son Jesus to earth to live a perfect life, to die a terrible death, to pay for our sins, your sins, my sins. And then he conquered that, conquered sin and death by rising from the dead three days later. And because he did all this, he fully deserves our entire life. He fully deserves all of our worship. 
We need to surrender our lives to him and serve him only. When we don't serve him, when we put other things above him, it's so easy to forget the importance of this in our lives. I mean, think about it. If God is not as important as he should be, there's no way his gospel is as important as it should be in your life. If he's not your everything, well, how could you be expected to tell others that he should be their everything? If you worship other things than God, you'll let those things determine how you live, what you buy, where you go, what you do with your time, who you love. When really, God should be the one in control of those things. And I can just imagine God saying to us today, like he did to the Israelites. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Go cry out to them. They're not going to save you. But I have. You need to remember that. Ask yourself today, what gods have I chosen in my life? How have they displaced the one true God in my life? I want you to imagine that, say one night, your house caught on fire. Where you live, it caught on fire. And you were trapped in a room, okay? Trapped in a room, no way out, just about to give up hope when a window breaks in front of you and a firefighter climbs in, carries you out on the ladder to safety, okay? Imagine that with me. He had seen you inside, risked his life to go get you, brought you out. Now imagine the next day, you go and you're talking to some of your friends about what just happened to you and say, this firefighter came and he rescued me from this house. And then they say, well, that's a plain old story. That happens all the time. That's what firefighters do. You need to make this story a little bit better. It has some potential, but make it a better story. Okay? Embellish it a bit. So you come up with a different story. You come up with a story that these arsonists came and planted a bomb in your house. And that lit the fire when it exploded downstairs. Huge earthquake shook the house. And then when all hope was lost and you thought you were going to die and you were taking your last breath, you heard a helicopter outside. And from these helicopter, all these super secret Air Force Marines come flying down on, like rappelling down to the house and they all crash into all these windows at once and save all your family members, put them on their thing and pull them out all at once right as the house exploded beneath you. And all of a sudden, you have the coolest story around. (laughs) Everyone thinks that story's good. So you start spreading this story around. But what would the firefighter who originally saved you think about that story? What would he think? Now you might think, that's just ridiculous. I would never change a story like that. I'd never forget that that firefighter saved me. He, what he did for me, I'd give credit where credit is due. Right? And you're right. It is ridiculous to think that we wouldn't give credit where credit is due. Or when we come to God. That we wouldn't give worship where worship is due. But that's exactly what we do. We start putting other things above him. Oh, you're the fourth or fifth most important thing to me. You might not say as much with your words, 
but we say as much with the way we live. Even though God deserves all your glory, all your worship, all your praise, all your life, we choose to put other things above him. And we forget what he's done for us. His salvation. You might ask to this point, okay, Pastor Matt, now that you've officially guilt-tripped us into seeing how bad our idolatry is in our lives, where do we go from here? What do we do? How do we come back to God? How, we make, how do we make things right with God? Well, I think we'll see a good answer in the way the Israelites finally responded here. I put it this way in your notes, that recognition of idolatry in our lives requires both confession and repentance. Confession of idolatry isn't enough. We must repent as well. Recognition of idolatry requires both confession and repentance. In verse 10, we've already seen the Israelites confess their sins. They come and say, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God, serving the Baals. But God wasn't satisfied with that, was he? He said, no, I already saved you, and you forsook me. He threatens that he won't save them again, even though now we know he would, because he would never break the covenant he had made with them. No, I believe God was just waiting for them. He was waiting for more than a confession. See, anyone can admit when they're wrong. Come to God and say, oh God, I have sinned. Anyone can do that. But for confession to mean anything, it must be accompanied by repentance. And not many people repent after they confess. Sometimes we make these things synonyms, like they mean the same thing. Okay? But they're definitely not. See, confession is the admittance of guilt or sin. Okay? That we admit we're wrong. Repentance is the turning away from that sin. Taking steps in your life to rid your life of that sin. It's doing a 180. Pursuing holiness. You see how the Israelites move past their confession here into repentance? We haven't got down to verse 15 yet. Let's read that. After God says, Let these other gods save you when you're in trouble. The Israelites, But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best. But please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. That's the key verse in this passage. That's what God was waiting for. If you think about it, ridding an entire nation of idols and altars, and possibly with many people who didn't want to, would not have been an easy task. This was not a snap-of-your-finger solution. No, they had to purposely and diligently rid their nation of false gods. I think that often we confess our sins to God, and then we wonder why very quickly after that, we fall back into the same sin. Why, over and over again, we keep falling in the same areas. And besides the fact that we have a sin nature and we'll continue to sin until we die, 
But have you under, wondered why can't we see improvement? Why don't I see improvement in my life? I think the, one of the main problems is that we are good at confessing. We're good at recognizing when we're wrong. We're not good at repenting. We don't take conscious steps to rid our life of sin. And confession without repentance, I believe, is worthless. If you're here today and you've either never heard or responded to the gospel before. Like I said earlier, Jesus came to earth to die for all your sins, to free us from them. But we must respond. We must respond. We must repent and say we trust Christ alone and his blood to save us from our sins for our salvation. We must repent of the sins in our life. For all of us, though, I want you to think about this. What would it mean for you to actually repent of the idolatry in your life? What would that mean? We don't often have physical wooden or bronze idols like they did back in the day that they could just crush or burn. That would be an easy solution. We had those. You could just take a sledgehammer out in the backyard and wail away. No, we can't do that. How do we take steps to repent? Well, think about it this way. If a good thing has become an idol in your life, so like family, friends, or your work, these are good things in your life. If this has become an idol for you, most of the time it just means putting God back in his rightful place. You don't get rid of your family. You don't get rid of your job of say, this job has become an idol for me, I must quit it. No. These are good things. But you just take steps to put God back in his rightful place. What would that mean for you? If something that's neutral, neither good or bad, has become an idol in your life, maybe you can go without it. At least for a while, until you get your priorities straight. Maybe you can take, a, say, a week's or a month's fast from something. Like a certain type of food, or movies, or TV, or something. Whatever the idol is. But I have to say, if something that is sinful, or bad, has become an idol in your life, you must be ruthless with it. You must destroy it. You can't stop looking at porn online. That's become an idol to you and just fills your thoughts all the time. Cancel your internet subscription. Take something, do a drastic step in your life. If you can't stop getting drunk, don't go out with those friends who are going to tempt you. Cut yourself off from them. Can't stop spending money. That's your idol. Cut up your credit cards. Do something that will cut off it's idle from your life. You can't stop sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. Break up. We must tear down the idols in our life. Put God back on his rightful throne. I personally need to wrestle with this in my life. Because I'm no better than you. I have idols in my life as well. 
What would it mean for me to cast down these idols? Put God back, number one. What am I going to do to get rid of the gods in my life that I've chosen? It may take some hard decisions. It may be painful. But it will be worth it. I promise you it will be worth it. Here's what I want you to do. Look down at your notes, what you wrote earlier. The two idols that you identified in your life that have displaced God. I want you to come up with one action step for each one of them. What would it mean to tear down this idol in my life? What would it mean to put God back above this idol? What are you going to do to worship only God in this area of your life? When you come up with an action step, write it down and be specific. If you come up with more than one step, great. But at least get one down before you leave today. I can't force you to do this. I'm just telling you. I can't force you, but I hope you will. I think it will help. Getting this down as a purposeful application of God's word and what he's convicted you of. If you want to take it a step further, go to someone you trust after and ask them, hold me accountable to this. I'm going to take this step. Keep me on the straight path. But before you leave, write down what you're going to apply from God's word. I can't end here, though, because the story doesn't end here. See, the Israelites finally confessed and repented their sins of idolatry to God. But that wasn't the last move in this passage. No, God stepped in. God finished the story. He accepted their repentance, and he compassionately delivered them. The point that we can take away from this is that when we repent of our idolatry, God shows us his compassionate mercy. When we repent, God shows us mercy and compassion once again. When we truly repent and turn away from these sins, we see his merciful compassion in our lives. Verse 16 When it says the Israelites, they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. What does it say next? And he and God could bear Israel's misery no longer. Another version says he was grieved by their misery. The message says God took Israel's troubles to heart. He had compassion on them. Even though he had threatened that he would no longer save them, he saw their repentance and chose to answer their prayers for rescue. He still loved them. He still cared about their welfare. And since they chose to return to him, he chose to return his saving power to the nation. And he delivered them. How? Well, he raised up another judge. This is what he was doing at this time. He raised a judge known as Jephthah, which is a story for a whole other day. It's in the next chapter. But Jephthah was used mightily by God to save Israel from the Ammonites' oppression. God saved them. Again, today, when we repent of our, our idolatry, I know that God will show us mercy. I know this because of one fact, because of the cross. See, Christ provided for us eternal mercy when he came and died for us. In the book of Acts, when Peter was preaching 
to some people in Acts. He said this, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord. When we repent because of Christ's mercy, our sins are wiped out. They're gone. And times of refreshing come from God. There's no better place for us to begin putting this into practice than at the foot of the cross. No better place. And that's where we're going to end today, around the Lord's table. Remembering our Savior's sacrifice upon the cross for us. Which eternally frees us from idolatry and all the other sins that we're prone to commit. Before we take communion, Angela's going to come sing a song for us with Michael. And this, this song powerfully describes the need for us to put God back on his throne in our lives. I invite you all to take this time as an opportunity for coming clean. For coming clean with God. Take the time to think about what you're going to do. Take the time to ponder what Christ has done for you. And as we go into communion, we'll continue that together. But we need to stop worshiping things that are so not worthy. And worship the one who is alone worthy of all our praise. Let's pray. God, we come to you today. We thank you for your conviction. For pointing out things in our lives that need to change. I pray for each one here that they would have courage and boldness and diligence, resolve, but mostly power from your Holy Spirit to put these things into practice. Thank you for coming for us, for providing mercy at the cross through your blood. We've done nothing to deserve you. We thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Clear the stage and set the sound and lights ablaze. If that's the measure you must take to crush the idols. Shook the pews and all the decorations too Until the congregations few Then have revival Tell your friends that this is where the party ends Until you're broken for your sins You can't be social And seek the Lord and wait for what he has in store And know that great is your reward So just be hopeful Cause you can Sing all you want to Yes you can Sing all you want to You can Sing all you want to And don't get me Worship is more than a song. Take a break.
awake from all the plans that you have made and sit at home alone and wait for God to whisper. Beg and plead to open up his mouth and speak and pray for real upon your knees until they blister. Shine the light on every corner of your life until the pride and lust and lies are in the open. Then read the word and detest the things you've heard until your heart and soul are stirred and rocked and broken. Because you can sing all you want to. the measure you must take to crush the eye. 